This is The Think Tank with Dr. Mike O'Neill, talking about the major political, economic, and social issues of the week. KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. The Think Tank. We're going to talk about Ruth Gator Ginsburg today. In the second half of the show, our guest will be Betsy West, who was the director of the documentary film RBG. We'll discuss both Justice Ginsburg and the making of the film. But first, Chuck Coughlin is here to discuss the political fallout. Welcome to the show, Chuck. Great to see you, Mike. Court vacancy in the midst of a presidential election. Do you think it helps either side? Well, it is 2020. (laughs) (laughs) There's a bonfire going on across the country of virus and uh, so many things to discern. Uh, But I've heard a variety of opinions on this. Uh, My colleagues have at high ground have differing opinions. My opinion is that that it does, if I go back to 18 and the cycle, we'd identified about 190,000 ticket splitting voters that in our opinion, turned that 18 race in favor of cinema over McSally. Those were voters that also voted for Ducey, but also voted for cinema. In this cycle, with the increased turnout in, uh, that's going to take place, we're pegging that number somewhere between 250,000 and 320,000. I don't think those voters are partisan voters. I think they are uh, fairness voters. They're you know uh, e- e- equanimity voters. They don't like the political noise that's taking place. They rejected the hyperpartisanship views of Ducey's opponent last time, and they rejected the more partisan views that McSally was expressing last time. So if I interpret that as the swing audience, my indicate my gut tells me that those folks will be turned off by this, that that the marching it through the 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 cycle here in the next 40 days um, will will alienate them further from the Trump ticket. I've had my colleagues and others say, you know, convincingly that it's a base turnout mechanism, it's Trump's obligation, it's Trump's duty, it's going to um, encourage Republican base turnout. Um, but, you know, my, my opinion is Republicans always vote. They, they show up. It's always, in Arizona at least, it's always who shows up around them. And my interpretation is that this is probably not a, electorally a great thing for Trump. He did want to change the narrative of the campaign because we're talking about the virus and the economy and neither of which he really wants to talk about. So he wanted to close with something that will be a legacy should he, uh, well, whether he wins or is defeated, it will be a legacy is that he was the president that uh, followed the Federalist Society and pointed the most uh, conservative justices. So we'll see. But my gut is it's not helping, won't help him. Here's my take. I wonder if you could react to this. Uh, Point number one, and this is not restricted to Arizona. One is everybody is dug in and two, everybody is motivated. So in terms of motivating voters, I think they're already there. Number uh, point two, and I think this is the sliver of an opportunity for Joe Biden. If he makes this Supreme Court appointment about the pre-existing conditions issue, the Affordable Care Act is going to be before the Supreme Court in the middle of November. And if he presents this nominee as the death knell to the Affordable Care Act and specifically to the pre-existing conditions coverage aspect of it, then he could gain some ground for it. So my, my base assumption is it's a wash. 
it's a wash in part because look at what has happened since January. In January, Joe Biden or the generic Democrat was ahead by seven or eight points. We've had a pandemic. We've had any number of other huge, we've had an impeachment, we've had uh, a, uh, a, a non-conviction, an, an acquittal, yeah. we've had, and, and those numbers did not budge. And here we are in almost October, and Joe Biden is ahead in the national polls by seven or eight percent. And you see individual polls go a little up or a little down from that, but the averages never change. I think all those individual polls, that's just random error. So if, if that, all those things, impeachment and pandemic doesn't move people, a Supreme Court uh, uh, justice, pretty hard to see that. I think there's a lot of wisdom in what you said, that most voters are dug in. That's why I went to my assumption of those potential swing voters that may be still on the fence here, that may still be looking at the race as to how this could affect them. Um, my instinct is, you know, I don't know national polls. We, you, I, yeah, I've lived in Arizona. My career has been in Arizona. You know, people ask me about other states. I go, I don't know. I do know Arizona, I think, pretty well. And I think it's very close. I think the race is very close. It's probably within the margin of error here. We know that the Trump campaign is aware of that because they've been out here five times with the president. Um, his son was out here this week as well, this past week. His daughter's been here. The vice president has been here twice. They are expending a considerable amount of resources trying to keep the state in the Republican column. Uh, the, to, on the other side, we have not seen the vice president on the Democratic side nominee, or we haven't, and we haven't seen Vice President Biden visit the state. So they have been spending their time and energy elsewhere. I presume that those campaigns know what they're doing. That may be wrong. That may be wrong too, but they may be looking at other states as more of an opportunity for them uh, as Arizona may be. Uh, I talked to people all across the country who watch the national races like you, um, and and I and I, I I must believe that that's the case. That that they're looking at other states as more of a swing possibility for him. But I, I also believe we're going to see Biden out here. We're going to see him here. We know uh, for a fact that Arizona is changing. We know that they, the Democrats picked up four seats in the, in the gubernatorial cycle in 18. We know they're within one seat in the state house uh, now of, of reclaiming or of claiming a majority there. Um, we know that turnout in the primary, this most recent primary, was at a record high for them. They came, you know, typically speaking in a, in a, in a primary electorate that we just went through, that, that Democrats uh, under participate uh, and Republicans over participate. Usually the margin in those elections historically has been about 12. We saw Republican advantage. We saw uh, in the 18 cycle that close uh, and we saw in the 20 cycle, it came within two points. So they participated at about a 51, 48 uh, level uh, and independence, uh, at least in Maricopa County, uh, requested uh, democratic ballots at about a 51, uh, 42 rate. Uh, so we know the swing has taken place. We know there's a surge of democratic participation over previous cycles. And uh, is it enough yet to, you know, 
we've heard about all of those times that Democrats are, you know, the Democratic surge, the, the tide's going to come in here. You know, does the tide go high enough to change the cycle? Um, and that tide has been off promise. That tide has been off promise and seldom delivered in the past. <laughs> it is it is underperformed. It's like the yeah. tide in Rocky Point. It may be changing a lot, but it never comes up really high. It goes out, but it doesn't come up. I think that we're all all of us here are a little gun shy about those. If we've been here a long time, you've uh, you're a little gun shy about those predictions because they have <laughs> failed to come through. We'll be back and we'll ask you uh, another question for Chuck. When we come back, want to ask? Okay, McConnell pulls this off. Uh, we'll ask you, first of all, do you think that's going to happen? And second, if they do, what are the prospects for the Democrats, uh, if they sweep, expanding the Supreme Court? Could they pull it off? And if so, will they pay a price when we return in just a moment in the Think Tank? The Think Tank. KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. Okay, we're back with Chuck Kaufman talking about the political fallout of the uh, Ruth Bader Ginsburg uh, passing. And uh, the question for you, Chuck, initially is this. Uh, I, I'm taking this as a given now. Tell me if you don't. Uh, I think Mitch McConnell can uh, pull this off. He, if he wants to get this uh, nominee through the Senate, he can do it. Do you have any doubts about that? I do not. I believe that. I, I believe Mitch will keep his word on this. You know, I was wondering early on if uh, Romney and those would stick and it'd come down to a one vote majority, but it appears he's got a two vote majority now with Murkowski and uh, um, Collins uh, walking off the, off the team uh, for this vote. And so uh, he'll have the votes, he'll get it done. Frankly, even those votes, uh, I, I saw wiggle room in there. They both said they didn't think that they should uh, bring it up for a vote, but they didn't say that they would actually vote against the nominee if it came up for an actual vote. Right. They so said they before the election. Uh, that did not close the door on them in a lame duck session afterward. I know and I, I, I think that... Uh, Senator Collins probably got a pass from McConnell because uh, to have taken the other position would have hurt her in a very close race. Yeah, yeah, I agree with that. Okay, the follow-up question. The Democrats are incensed. There's discussion about Joe Biden wins and he carries the Senate with him. Uh, could he, could he, uh, he, they have the legal ability to uh, expand the su Supreme Court. It requires only legislation. The court has not always been at nine. Could they pull that off? And if they did, would they pay a political price? Well, I mean, you correct me if I'm wrong here, but the filibuster rule is potentially still in place that they could, the 60 votes to for cloture on debate. You, um, you're so correct. Have, I'm assuming they throw that out as well. Right. That'd be the first thing to go. Yep. Right. And then that it's Katie bar the door. It, it, anything can happen um, that they would throw that rule under the bus and it would change the character of the Senate um, substantially. Uh, you know, I, it depends where the Republican Party goes uh, in a post-Trump era and what it, what, it, what it aspires to be. Um, 
if you if you, the trend line stays there and it stays with the you know uh, with with a Trump visage over a dominant portion of the Republican Party and it is the narrative of the Republican Party, then I could say that would that that would probably be accepted. I mean, if if uh, Biden wins, you, you'd think that they would throw cloture out. I think personally, it'd be a mistake for the country to go down that road. I think it'd be a mistake for Biden to go down that road. Um, but I could see the partisan elements of uh, of of the of the of the Democratic Party demanding that. Um, I would hope Biden would not do that uh, for the sake of the country. But I could see him being strongly encouraged to do that. Well, I could see him citing the McConnell rule, being when you're in the majority, you make the rules. Yep, and that that is deleterious to the character of what has been our democracy, that it requires bipartisan cooperation. And there's plenty of examples that, you know, from both the Trump tax cut and the Obamacare uh, original passage that uh, that um, that can happen. So that that can happen. Both things are troublesome. And well, so, I remember John McCain giving a thumbs down, which yeah. uh, which was, I thought, part of a sole example of bipartisanship in the whole thing. I'm hard pressed to think of well, another. And on the Repu- on the Republican side, on the health care, you brought that up. That's going to be, you know, that's going to be in front of the court probably in November as well. And, you know, McCain voted no on repeal of the Affordable Health Care Act because Republicans didn't have an answer. There is no alternative that they've provided as a substitute. Um, and the rule uh, in, in representative democracy, once you provide something, very difficult to take it away. And the argument is that it makes the country healthier. Even Jan Brewer, you know, expanded that, the health care in 20 uh, in Arizona to that additional 58,000 people over and above what Arizona was already doing because it provided the additional care that the federal government would, uh, would, would provide. And today, the argument would be that the healthcare system in Arizona is, is really healthy because of that. It's financially stable. It's been with, able to withstand um, the downturn in the economy and the, the pandemic itself and the reduction in procedures that have gone on. And so the argument is that the healthcare system itself would suffer, and it would, because all of these people end up the, the fallacy of the affordable of repealing the Affordable Care Act is you don't repeal the people. They still show up. They still show up. And those people like me who pays insurance for my employees end up paying the tab because it's the hidden health care tax. It's what gets rolled through to everybody else. Sure. And that's why when you worked with the governor on that, Governor Brewer, yeah. uh, one of your biggest allies was the hospitals because they were being sunk by all the uncompensated care. And one of the things the Affordable Care Act did was it got them some compensation for care that they're going to give anyway. Right. You got to pay for it. It's not like the people don't show up. That was always the fallacy of the argument that the Republicans made is these people are real. They show up and you got to pay for them. I have one last question. We only have a minute, so it's got to be quick. And it's too big a question for that. Uh, There's all sorts of rumblings about now about Trump not committing to a peaceful transfer of power. I don't want to take on that issue. But my question is, can the Democrats make this an issue in Senate races, trying to put Republican Senate candidates on the spot to say that they will oppose such a thing? Oh, I'm sure they may try. I guess there's a big another Atlantic article coming out about his refusal to shift. 
I just think it's a bunch of hyperventilation. Uh, I'm confident that Trump will move on if he if he loses decisively. It will take some time to certify all the election results, but once certified, you know, he'll be happy to go in a party in absentia and be the loyal minority. And obviously, one of the things that he'll have in his favor making that argument is I fully expect a sea of red to show up on the maps on election night to the extent that states are reporting in-person voting first. Arizona will be an exception to that because we're the opposite. We're, our absentee ballots will be counted first. And yeah. we'll probably, we will show a big Joe Biden lead in the beginning, no question, because yeah. those will be absentee. Most other states will be showing day of election voting. Anyway, we're out of time. Thank you. We'll be back with the uh, director of RGB, the movie, when we return in the think tank. The Think Tank, KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're still talking about Ruth Bader Ginsburg, but uh, a somewhat different take this time. Betsy West was a producer and news executive at both CBS and ABC, where, among other awards, she accumulated 21 Emmys. She's also an emeritus professor at Columbia School of Journalism. Relevant to today's discussion, she directed the 2018 documentary film, RBG, about Ruth Bader Ginsburg. It's replaying occasionally on CNN and is worth watching well. And uh, welcome to the Think Tank. Thank you, Mike. Nice to be here. I have two broad areas I'd like to talk to you about. Uh, of course, your perspectives on Ruth Bader Ginsburg are of interest, but I'm sure in the course of the discussion, there are people who would like to hear about the process of filmmaking. Uh, let me open by asking you, uh, why, why uh, did you decide to do this particular film and, and how'd you go about it? Well, uh, in 2015, uh, Justice Ginsburg uh, was already being called Notorious RBG because of the rather blistering and compelling dissents that she had written to uh, decisions by a Supreme Court that was becoming ever more conservative. And uh, my directing partner, Julie Cohen, and I had both interviewed Justice Ginsburg for separate documentaries, you know, shorter interviews uh, in the years past. And we knew that there was much more to her story than just uh, her, her tenure on the Supreme Court. We knew that she was a women's rights pioneer, really the legal architect of the women's movement. And we knew that uh, she had a great love story. And we thought, wow, this would make a great documentary. So that was the impetus going about it, took some work. We approached her uh, with an email. Her first response was a kind of brief, not yet. Uh, so we tried to take that optimistically and say, well, you know, that's an invitation to try again. And a few months later, we wrote her an email suggesting some of the people that we would interview and, and uh, that we didn't have to talk to her right away. She wrote back again. She said, well, I really couldn't give you an interview for at least two years. This is, you know, when she's already like 80, 82 and a half years old. But she said, uh, if you are going to be talking to people, you might want to also consider, and she named a few more people, colleagues uh, of hers. And so at that time, we realized, okay, she's opening the door for us. So in the, so she really did, she really did, you know, like I said, uh, well, like you said, uh, 
she opened the door for you and you knew you you were going to be able to do it. And if, yeah. if she's suggesting names of people to talk to, she's cooperating. She's cooperating. And so, you know, we started following her. Her office uh, suggested a list of events, you know, because she and some of the other justices during their off time, often in the summer, will appear at law schools and give speeches and do seminars and various things. And so her office gave us a list of some of the things she was going to be doing. And, um, so we started to to follow her around the country. And, and some of the things were, for example, her memorial for Justice Scalia uh, in Chicago. And she told us about going down to the Virginia Military Institute on the 20th anniversary of the landmark decision that she wrote that opened up VMI to women. So she was sharing with us the opportunity to go to these you know, quasi public private events and uh you know then eventually two years later we did get our interview and uh i think we saw some of those uh some of those venues and some of those speeches in your in your film yeah absolutely that was that was the basis and then of course we had a very kind of momentous meeting with her about a year into filming ostensibly to kind of just tell her what we'd been doing we asked for a meeting but the real purpose of the meeting was to ask for more personal access to her life that we wanted to film her in her office working in her office we wanted to film her at home and with her family members and then literally mike i mean i was just i i could barely get the words out of my mouth because i was so nervous and i said i said and would it be possible for us to film you working out <laughs> in your gym <laughs> i was so nervous and she paused you know for about 10 seconds and then she said yes i, I think that would be possible and that was some of the most visually memorable yeah. stuff in the whole film yeah yeah exactly i mean that really was something that we knew we wanted to do from the very beginning but that we waited quite some time before she had begun to trust us a little bit before we asked what in the course of delving into her life, what was it that most surprised you about her life story? Well, um, she's a woman who faced a lot of adversity in her life. Uh, her mother died when she was 17 years old. Uh, her husband was gravely ill when they were both in law school. And then, you know, so on a personal level, she also herself overcame multiple bouts of cancer. And then professionally, when she started out, I mean, here's this super smart woman, can't get a job. I think what, when she came out of Harvard Law School, top of her class and she couldn't get a job. I think that what really, I guess we knew this, but we really saw how determined she was, how optimistic she was. It was sort of no matter what happened, she would find a way to push through and to, uh, to get to where she was going. So I think it was that determination, that optimism. I'm, I wondered about watching that, about the extent to which her own experiences with discrimination and adversity contributed to her zeal to strike down barriers oh, for others. Absolutely, of course. But you know, what's interesting is that, you know, she had had these experiences herself, but she hadn't really put a name to it, I think, until the women's movement. So this had all happened to her in the early 60s. And if you remember- That was pre women's uh, movement. The women's movement was really boiling up in the late 60s. And she had students at Rutgers Law School because she had become an academic when she was not able to get the kind of uh, law job that she had initially wanted. 
the students were coming to her and saying, well, what about discrimination against women? What about women in the law? And she said she went into the library and spent about a month researching uh, cases involving women in the law. She said it, it only took that amount of time because there really wasn't that much case law, that people had just, nobody was challenging it. Everybody was taking for granted that this is the way society worked, that women could be discriminated against either in the law or in practice or in custom. And, you know, that's, we're, we're protecting women, we're helping them, we're, we're keeping them from having to work long hours as opposed to, oh, we're keeping them from getting overtime pay. You know, we're, we're putting them on a pedestal. And she quickly saw that to the contrary, that was not a pedestal, it was a cage. And, and the famous quotation, we don't want to be on a pedestal. Yeah. We just want you to get your, your feet off our neck. Please, yeah, get our, which was a, a, a quote from a feminist from the 19th century. You know, just one thing Justice Ginsburg really understood is that she was taking a place in a long line of women who had been fighting uh, for equality for decades. You know, I... I think back over looking over her life and some of the barriers and the cases she took on. And even as somebody who lived through that, you know, the no credit in your own name, explicit discrimination, help wanted male, help wanted female in the newspaper. I, I, I find it difficult to believe that it was that recent because the changes since then have been so profound. And I think in particular, younger people look at that and say, well, that's absurd. And historically, that seems like it ought to have been a 19th century phenomenon, but yeah. it really was pretty far into the 20th century. Yeah, yeah, no, it was surprising. And, and we tried to make that point in the film. But I think, I mean, the other point going forward from that is that I think many of us who benefited from, um, uh, a, you know, from Ruth Bader Ginsburg's work and uh, who were able to go into professions that had been largely excluded to women, I think many of us didn't recognize ongoing discrimination to today. And the Me Too movement was kind of an eye opener for all of us. And, you know, we did have a chance after the film came out to ask Justice Ginsburg about Me Too and what she felt about it. She said that, uh, you know, she had faced early in her career, she wasn't discriminated against because she couldn't even, she didn't face harassment because she couldn't even get in the door in order to, to be harassed, except for in school. She remembered vividly having been harassed by a professor who was basically trying to trade answers to a test for, um, you know, sexual favors. And, you know, she had rebuffed him. But I think she, in her later years, understood that there was a lot of work to be done. Well, we'll be back with uh, Betsy West discussing the life and the film, RGB, and the woman, Ruth Bader Ginsburg, when we return in just a moment in The Think Tank. The Think Tank. KTAR News on 92.3 FM and KTAR.com. We're here talking with Betsy West, who is the, was the director of the movie, the documentary, CNN documentary film, RGB. Uh, I can't always do that. Everybody I, does that. As like. somebody who, if you've ever messed with uh, audio, video cables, there's a cable known as the RB, R, 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 
she big red green blue and i before i said started the show i said i gotta not do that and of course when you when your mind says you gotta not do something it's the first thing you're gonna do uh, anyway the film about ruth bader ginsburg and uh, i was looking at uh, yeah, i look back at the pictures of her graduating class of at, uh, at harvard and columbia and there was a handful of women and uh I, I looked up what's happened, and, and uh, since 2016, women have actually outnumbered men in American law schools. And that's a generation or two in kind of historical, it may seem slow if you're living through it, but if we consider that, uh, you know, human beings have been around for some tens of thousands of years, that is, that is breathtakingly fast social change about something as basic as the division of labor. Yeah, no, absolutely. And the changes uh, to opportunities that were opened up for women as a result of Ruth Bader Ginsburg's work as a litigator in the 1970s are tremendous. I mean, we all owe her a debt of gratitude. Have you found in, in talking to people who are viewing your film uh, differences between older and younger women I wonder if some of the younger women almost are incredulous. Well, um, you know, women of all generations seem to respond to RBG. Uh, you know, the older women who know full well what she was facing, for them, they understand just this implicit sense that women could be treated as second-class citizens and don't even don't even question it. Um, I think that the millennial women who started the notorious RBG on the internet uh, were, you know, understood and, and, and appreciated historically what she had done. And they saw in her uh, a role model. Um, and, you know, you, you would go to these events uh, where she speaks at law schools and things, there'd be a line around the block, often of women, men as well, feminist men as well, you know, carrying their mugs or their or her book. And often they wouldn't even have a ticket. It was just like, we want to see her. I mean, there was something that just this unlikely powerful woman. She didn't look powerful, but she certainly was. I mean, and the other thing that really blew us away from the very time that we had the premiere at Sundance Film Festival was little girls showing up to see this movie. I mean, Julie Cohen and I really didn't think that we were making a movie for children, but it turns out that especially young girls just love the idea of this tiny, grandmother who is able to accomplish so much, who is revered, who is a powerful person. She doesn't look like your normal, powerful, big man person, you know, and she's carrying her gavel and the little girls would show up dressed like RBG, you know, with the glasses and their hair back. And that was really so inspiring. That must that must have been yeah it, almost like it's sort of the perfect uh, Superman figure exactly know? because it isn't a macho thing it's it's done with intellect and and with uh, and with empathy yeah absolutely so 
some people have wondered why uh, Justice Ginsburg stayed so long on the court, especially when she was obviously in failing health. I heard the story that the reason that a lot of it had to do with Sandra Day O'Connor, who regretted leaving and that Justice Ginsburg was very aware of that. And uh, I was wondering if you ever discussed that. Yeah, I mean, I think there's a variety of things. Uh, obviously, I think that the example of, of Sandra Day O'Connor leaving too soon uh, was maybe may have had an influence. I think, you know, Justice Ginsburg also saw a number of male justices who worked well into their 80s, in some cases 90 years old, and she felt that as long as she was capable of doing the job, uh, that that she should continue, just like Justice Stevens had her. Justice mm -hmm. Douglas. I mean, there, there were many, many men who worked late into their 80s and in some cases 90. Um, and, and, and there was no sense that her mind was failing. Yes, she was having medical problems, but she always bounced back. You know, she did those workouts in the gym and she was one of the most prolific of the justices. She never failed in writing her opinions or her dissents. In fact, she would often beat her clerks to the to the case. I mean, clerks uh, told us that uh, if they were given an assignment to write a draft of something and they didn't do it quickly enough, she would just say, well, you know, never mind, I've, I've already finished it, which would be a pretty horrible thing to happen if you were Justice Ginsburg's I, I clerk. Devastating because those yeah. clerks are 25, 26 year old brilliant people, but you one would think that they would have the energy to take on. <laughs> Absolutely. So I don't think there was any sense that she was lacking the ability to do this. And let's face it, I think uh, that she expected to retire when a female president took over in 2016. And that was not to happen. Well, everybody was surprised by that one. <laughs> yeah. So uh, a combination of things. I think she has pointed out that uh, had she retired later into uh, Barack Obama's term, really after the first two years, he was going to have a very hard time getting his nominee through a Republican Senate. Um, and of course, in the last year, he couldn't even get the nominee considered. And yeah, well, that, yeah, that, that, that's another story validated by facts. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, were you surprised at the magnitude of the outpouring on her death? No. Vigil at the Supreme Court, uh, even other things like the spurred in democratic contributions, which were within hours and spontaneous. Yeah. You know, we've all been holding our breath because it was clear this May and June that Justice Ginsburg had another relapse and that this was very, very serious. So I think um, her death didn't really take us by surprise. And yet I, I was surprised by the kind of depth of my own feeling about it. I mean, we're at a very momentous time in our history, uh, you know, on virtually six weeks before the most contentious election that we can think of in recent, certainly in recent history. And her deathbed wish, I most fervent, my most fervent wish is that I be um, replaced by a new president, which of course does not look like um, is going to be fulfilled. It looks like she will be replaced. And um, all of those things 
I think just galvanized people. Uh, and I, to see the outpouring in front of the Supreme Court was just, uh, you know, on Friday night was so moving. Uh, and then the ongoing uh, response, and obviously there's a response to the from those who are we're happy to see her go. Uh, we've got about a minute. Uh, last question is, what do you think her most enduring legacy will be? I think um, it will be her contributions to the women of America. Uh, had she not become a Supreme Court justice, Ruth Bader Ginsburg changed the world for American women. And um, that is a legacy that uh, people will remember for decades, if not centuries. Thank you very much, Betsy West. A little program note, uh, next week, uh, the control of the Arizona State Senate is at stake. The Republicans have controlled that body in this state for decades. Uh, the, uh, that control likely hinges on the results of Legislative District 28. The incumbent Kate Brophy McGee is facing Christine Porter Marsh in a rematch. A, a seat that was held by uh, Kate Brophy McGee by 238 votes last time. And the week after that, the most important job in the criminal justice system, and I'll talk later about why I think that's it, uh, why that is that, it's the county attorney has immense discretion more than any other place in the cr criminal justice system. Alistair Adele is the appointed incumbent. Incumbent Julie Gunnigal is her opponents. They will be here in the week following. Neither has run for executive elected office before, and they will both be here in, I think, their first joint appearance in the entire campaign. And I will note, apropos the topic of this uh, uh, this show, this time, uh, all these all women. Thank you very much, Betsy, for Great. your uh, your help. And uh, it's been uh, uh, enjoyable and uh, enlightening to have you here. Good to talk to you, Mike. Sounds like a good program coming up. Bye-bye. Take care.